Amen. All right, wrapping up the Acts series today. The last Sunday in Acts. It's been almost a two-year journey. Amazing stuff. Been so good to be together. We finished up Acts 28 two weeks ago. Last week, we started with core convictions. So essentially asking the question, all right, what's, what's the so what? How do we then apply what we've learned over the past two years together? Because the last thing we want to do is get to the end of this thing and say, how fun was that? Such a cool journey through Acts. What's next? Okay. There'll be other stuff that happens next, but we did this whole Acts thing so we can learn what a church is. That's the whole point. We want to be a church like this church, not identical to this church, but taking what they really believed about themselves and about Jesus seriously. Because this church changed the world, right? We're, we're here today because of this church. That's just a simple fact. And I think that you're here at Canopy because you want to be a part of something like that. You don't want to just show up on a Sunday, you know, one and a half times a month and sing a couple songs and pat ourselves on the back for how great we are. We want to change the world, right? Yeah. Because that's what the gospel of the kingdom is. It's good news for the real world. And how many of you know this world needs good news? It needs communities of people that are good news communities living this stuff out. And so we take this seriously and we say, how do we now put into action what we've learned? Last week, we talked about eight core convictions, these like beliefs that the early church had about themselves, about Jesus, and about what he's up to in the world. And today, I want to keep going with, with eight more core convictions. These are going to be a little bit less belief-focused and a little bit more action-focused. So on the basis of what they believed, what did they do? And all of the practices have to flow out of belief. Here's how this works, right? If practice doesn't flow out of belief, we call it ritual. We call it legalism or Phariseeism. If it's just something we do for the sake of doing it, it just to make us feel better, or to make us feel like we're disciplined or doing the right things, it has no value whatsoever. In fact, we call that religion. Just a set of practices that we do without any belief behind it. So we have to flow out of belief. Now, by the way, we can get this wrong on the other side too, right? We can believe lots of great things. That never actually find their way into action. James has stuff to say about that. Faith without works, he says, is dead. So it's not enough for us to start with last week's message and say, yes, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. Yes, I believe that the church is the body of Christ. Yes, I believe that the gospel is good news for the world. And stop there. That's not enough. James would say, that's dead. <laughs> You've got to now put that into action. But also... Today's eight convictions, we have to hold in light of the beliefs from last week. They're not just practices that we do without thinking about it. They're things that flow out of it. Flow, flow out of it. If Jesus is Lord, then these practices we're about to talk about are ways to ground ourselves in his lordship. Right? Because you'll leave this place and there are lots of other lords out there that would have us bow and knee. And these practices are ways that we can help ourselves in a world of God's. In a world of distractions and idols, help ourselves remember who is really Lord. It's easy to forget, isn't it? If Jesus is Lord, then these are ways that we bow to him. If the church is the body of Christ, then these things are ways that we sacrifice our own agendas for what he's up to in the community of faith. If the Holy Spirit empowers the church to be the body of Christ, then everything we're about to talk about are ways that we submit or rely on the power of the Holy Spirit instead of our own. If community is essential and Jesus has redefined family, no longer just by DNA, but on the basis of shared filling with the spirit, then these are ways of building community and investing in family. 
and learning to love each other. If the church is a kingdom of priests where everybody gets to play, then these are ways for everybody to play. There's nothing I'm going to say today that's just for the paid staff. Or if you've been around long enough. This is you walk in the door and if you want to, you can do it. If the mission of the kingdom is good news for the real world and for all nations, then these are ways of engaging and empowering mission. So, let's dive right in. Eight more core convictions. First one is this. The Bible is the story of God completed in the person of Jesus. The Bible is the story of God completed in the person of Jesus. We get into all sorts of conversations in this day and age about this dichotomy between word and spirit, right? There's some churches that are known to be like word churches where they preach the Bible really well, but they're sort of, you know, what, what my pastor used to call the frozen chosen. You know what I mean? He's just sort of stiff and cold, but they really know the Bible as well. And then you have other churches where you have sort of this charismatic and Pentecostal thing, but you're not sure you've seen the Bible open in a long time. There's, now, there's a lot of churches in between there as well. What I'm trying to say is there doesn't have to be a tension between these things. Because the Holy Spirit enlivens the Word of God, and the Word of God shows us who the Spirit is and what He's up to in the world. And these two things work together in the book of Acts. Now, Acts is very famous for being a story of the Holy Spirit. It's how the Holy Spirit works through people. It starts with the Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost. He's, he's filling crazy people, random people, Gentiles, Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, just everybody else. The Spirit is all over the book of Acts. But what you might not notice when you're not paying attention is every time the Spirit falls, what do they do? They preach the Word. The Spirit falls, crazy charismatic stuff, gifts and prophecy and tongues and all this sort of stuff happens, and then they preach the Word of God. And this is a community that holds Word and Spirit, in, not intention, that's the wrong idea, but they hold them both. And live out of both. They are people of the Word and the people of the Spirit. And so to be Christian is to be a person of the word of God. Because the Bible teaches us who God is. And who we are. And what God's up to in the world. And what it means to be a part of it. And so we need to be people who know the story well. Because this is our story. If we don't know this, that, that's what happens every time they preach the, the Bible in the book of Acts. They get up and they start at the very beginning. And they work their way through from start to finish. And land in Jesus and then the so what? Now, because this is who Jesus is on the basis of the whole story of Scripture, then this is who we are, and this is what we do. That makes sense? You read the whole sweep of Scripture, you land in Jesus, and then you respond. And I say it that way to say that's what we want to do in this place. That's what will always happen in this place. When you come into this place, we will always teach the Word of God. We'll always land with Jesus. And we'll always look for opportunities to respond. We have to. That's what it means to be people of the word. If we don't, if we don't ground ourselves in that story, we have no idea who we are. And here's the thing. I think this is scary because I think a lot of Christians are losing the idea, the, the understanding of who they are. Because we've given up the word of God. We've given up passing on the word of God. You know what's crazy is I was... Reading these stats about the current state of the church, Tim Keller published an article a couple days ago in The Atlantic. Tim's a, a pastor uh, in, in New York City, amazing guy. He published an article about sort of the de-Christianization of America. And about 20 years ago, the average number of people, or the, the sort of average percentage of Americans who would say they were Christian, now I'm not going to get into whether or not they, they were or not, but would say they were, 
was over 75% 20 years ago. And what most scholars uh, and researchers are saying is within the next 20 years, that number will be in the 40%. A 25% drop, over a 25% drop in less than 50 years. Now, I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not, I'm not even saying this is necessarily an awful thing. It's actually an opportunity. However, I am saying it, it tells, uh, the, the, the percentages bear out, um, what am I trying to say? They indicate that we've got a problem with storytelling that we're not passing on the story to the next generation. And that within a couple generations, it's entirely possible, 50, generation, or 50 years is two generations. Within two generations, it's, it's entirely possible to go from like largely Christian to post-Christian just like that. 50 years, two generations. How does it work? Well, here's how it works. You have a Christian grandparent who for whatever reason doesn't tell the story well or in a compelling way and so you have a nominally Christian parent who doesn't tell the story at all, and pretty soon you have a kid who's never heard any of it. And within two generations, the gospel witness is gone from a culture. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not, I'm not saying let's take it back. I'm not, I'm not saying any of this. I'm just saying let's tell the story well. That's our job. Okay? We don't have to strategize about how to make America Christian again. All we have to do is tell the story well. And be people of the word who pass on the story from generation to generation so that everybody who walks through the doors of this church or encounters one of you is hearing the story of God embodied in the person of Jesus in a way that demands a response. Does that make sense? Yes. One of the things I want to do here today is talk about how these practices, uh, how we either are or aspire to flesh out these practices of canopy. So what does it mean, like, uh, what does it mean for us to be people of the word here? Well, Obviously, every time you come in on a Sunday, you're going to hear the Word of God preached. Well, beyond that, we want to read the Bible together. Last year, we, uh, we took a swing at something we called improv lessons. I'm still not entirely sure the degree to which it was, it was successful. In pockets, it was awesome. and In other pockets, it felt like we were uh, swimming up against stream. But anyway, we're going to try again to read the Bible together this year. Okay, Here's what it's going to look like. Starting right after Easter, we're going to read the book of Mark together. The whole year long, for nine months. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but bear with me. Rather than doing a Bible in the year plan, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the, the book of Mark four times together as a community. Okay? More details to come, but the first one is going to be all together. We're going to get together in a room. We're going to have, maybe here, I'm not sure where yet. We're going to have dinner. We're going to make a night of it, and we're going to read the entire gospel out loud. Okay? It's going to be great. It's going to be, I promise, it's a good story. This is not like, oh my gosh, I can't sit for two hours and listen to the Bible. No, it's good, and it's going to be read well. And the reason we do that is to get the whole sweep of the story. And then after that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of launch you into, and we're going to give journals to everybody to do this, three months of reading the Bible in what I call slow reading, which is no commentaries, no anything else, just a pen and a journal in your hand. And you underline anything that stands out to you, and you write questions in your journal, and you write lots of little question marks in your Bible, and you're just wrestling with the text on your own. Some days it'll be, be maybe three or four verses. You're just reading line by line, word by word, what's going on here. We're going to do that for three months together. After that, everybody here is going to get an N.T. Wright commentary called Mark for Everyone. And we're going to read it again with the commentary in hand. Yeah. Study, we call this study reading. And then finally, the last time, for three months, we're going to read it Lectio style. In other words, we're going to take a chunk and meditate on it, on it every day, inviting the Holy Spirit to sort of enliven this in our heads. This is to be people of the word. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is the incarnate word of God, and we're going to spend nine months just following him around through the book of Mark. We want to continue 
to be people of the word who tell the story well, because if we don't know this story, we can't live it. And if we're not living it, then there is no hope for the world. Yeah. So, Bible is the story of God completing the person of Jesus. By the way, this, um, this also means that we read the Bible in a specific way around here, which means that we don't just pick the parts that we like and say this is what it says. We read the, the parts, you know, because we can't read the whole Bible every week together, right? But we read the parts, and we talk about the parts in the context of the whole. Because the Bible, as a professor of mine once said in college, is a long, complicated book. You have to read the whole thing. You can't just take one chunk and say, oh, this is what this chunk says. Now I now that, that must mean what that's what I'm supposed to do. We'll talk about this more in a second. Especially when there are bits that seem to contradict each other. They don't, but they seem to. And so we have to read it with our minds and say, okay, how does this fit into the whole story of God? And when you get confused, here's the deal. When you get confused, what do you do? You look at Jesus. Because Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, says the whole story is about me. Mm -hmm. Paraphrasing. But he says the law and the prophets, they were talking about me. So if you want to know what is biblical, look at Jesus. Jesus was the most biblical person of all time. Okay? <laughs> So, for something to be biblical doesn't just mean you can find it in the Bible, because you can find all sorts of bad stuff in the Bible. It's, is it true of the whole sweep of Scripture, from start to finish, as embodied in the person of Jesus? Okay, next. Here we go. Prayer is the lifeblood of kingdom living. This one's real simple. The early church didn't accomplish anything outside of prayer. From the beginning to the end of the book, this was a praying church. It starts with Jesus telling the disciples, all right, I've got a mission for you. Okay, I've got a mission for you. Essentially, I want you to tell the world who I am. I want you to be witnesses to the resurrection everywhere, everywhere you go. So here's what I want you to do first. Wait. Get on your knees and wait. And that's how they took Jesus. When he said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Spirit, they took that to mean pray. And it says in Acts 2 that they were gathered in constant prayer when the Spirit of God fell. So this was a church that saw the mission of the kingdom in front of them and realized there's no way we can pull this off on our own, so we'd better pray. It wasn't a church that prayed because they should. It's a church that prays because they must. And it just reveals this kind of underlying um, assumption about life, doesn't it? Because a lot of us talk about prayer like a discipline. Like it's, oh, you know what? I just haven't been praying very much lately. I've just been busy. I've been distracted. I've had a lot on my mind. And, I ha and, and this is me talking, okay? Confession time. I do this too. I just haven't prayed a lot. I, I just have to be more disciplined in my prayer life. And then I look at the church in Acts, and I'm like, do you think that that's what it was for them? That it was a discipline? Because it feels like when you're reading the, 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 the story of Acts, it feels like it's, it's like air. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh man, I just haven't been breathing that much lately. I really ought to, you know, discipline myself and take some deep breaths, you know? No, we don't do that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like exercise, right? When you're young, exercise is one of those things where you're like, ah, oh, it'd be nice if I exercised more. Look a little bit better, feel a little bit better, maybe have a better diet. But when you get old, you realize that like, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That's what prayer is here. They realize that if they don't do it, they're dead. Yeah. They're dead in the water apart from Jesus. And it just reveals this, this core belief. 
that we are the body of Christ, that we are called to his work in the world, that the resurrection is breaking out, that the kingdom of God is here. There's this urgency to their lives that they're just, it's not just, I'm just going about my day to day and I just totally forgot about you, Lord. It's like, no, I, I, I've changed the way I see the entire world. And with this new worldview, if I don't have the power of the spirit, like moment by moment, I'm sunk. I can't do anything apart from you. They just, they prayed all the time. They prayed before the day of Pentecost. They, they prayed to commission people. They prayed when persecution broke out. Crazy. When they first get arrested, for, for the very first time, when Peter and John got arrested and then they got released, they get sent back and they prayed together as a community. You know what they prayed? Lord, it's getting scary out there. So give us more boldness. <laughs> That we can that we can just that we can preach the word of God with more not not protect us from this not end the persecution although there's nothing wrong with that but give us more boldness in the face of it they were shaped by their prayers changed and the world around them changed in response when they prayed stuff happened lives were changed families were changed cities were changed like honestly I know I keep beating this drum over and over again but we're here today because of the prayers they prayed. So who's going to be here in the future because of the prayers we pray? They move nations, change the course of history. So what does it look like here? Well, I mean, we always want to pray. And obviously this looks like something for our personal life. But as a community, how do we pray together? Well, you see, we've got this thing called Boiler Room. Every Sunday, you, our customers showing up here at 10.15-ish when service starts. But at 9.30, a group of us gathered to pray. Um, we call it the boiler room. It's a, we stole it from a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who's one of the most famous pastors and preachers of all time. In London, he had this huge church, preached the gospel to millions of people over the course of a lifetime. And whenever people came to tour his church, they wanted to see the sanctuary. It's a beautiful building in London, just absolutely gorgeous. And he would take people through the sanctuary and show them all this stuff. And then he'd say, I've got one more thing to show you if you have time. You want to see the boiler room? which in an old British building is where how you power the building. They're powered on steam. So they're dirty, dusty, like nasty old like basements, right? So everybody's always weirded out, but Spurgeon would take them to the boiler room and he'd open the door and at any time of day, there were at least 100 people in that room praying. And he said, do you know how our church does what we do? This room. He said, do you know why my preaching is effective? My people pray for me. Nothing in this church happened outside of the power of prayer, and you knew it. Friends, we've seen God move in this church in crazy ways in the past six months especially. You know what's, you know what's coincidental about that? About six months ago, we launched Boiler Room. God moves when his people pray. It started with a couple people. Now there's 20 to 30 people every Sunday praying for you. Praying for these, this space and for what God's going to do. And he's showing up and he's moving. Join us. Boiler room, 9.30. Noon prayer. We, we fast and pray together. From Tuesday night to Wednesday night, we're fasting. Wednesday at noon, we gather in this place. I know it's a, a weird time and it's okay if you can't make it. But if you can, make it. From 12 to 12.30, we pray at this place. We're, we're, we're hungry. It's lunchtime. But choosing instead of eating to, to, to feast on the presence of God together and intercede for our church. Show up. If you can. If not, wherever you are, join us from 12 to 12.30 prayer. Seek first, Wednesday nights, time of prayer and worship. 
not just community, not just it's good to have some tacos together, but a time of really doing what we call it, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added. Everything else will fall into place. We want to be more of a praying church, so we want to invite you. Show up to these spaces. We all love Sundays. God does amazing things in this space, and we pray in this place too, but like, how great would it be if our prayer meetings were every bit as packed and as expectant as our Sunday mornings? I don't say that to guilt anybody. I understand that we can't all be at everything. But if you can, prioritize it, because prayer is how God does things through his church. So prayer is the lifeblood of kingdom living. Next, shared rhythms form the backbone of this community. Shared rhythms. In other words, they begin to think about time differently in light of the lordship of Jesus, right? If Jesus is king and his kingdom is breaking into this world, then it's going to mean that I have to change the way I live on a daily basis. I can't just keep doing what I'm doing and expect that that it'll be in alignment with the kingdom of God. We talked about that last week. You know, you can't just walk out the door and expect to be swept along by the rhythm of king and kingdom. It's not going to happen in this world. And so followers of Jesus, from the very beginning, have understood that we have to have a different, um, the, the language that the Catholics use is rule of life. A different rule of life, a different set of habits that ingrain us in the story that remind us who we are, these things that like we, we sort of trip over. Because if we just go about our day, if you just wake up and you roll over and you grab the phone and you scroll on Instagram or scroll the news or whatever else and you just start that way, how do you think your, your day is going to go? Where do you think you're going to end up? You're just going to get carried along in this wave of distraction and busyness and pretty soon you'll get to the end of the day and, and you'll say things like, I just said a second ago, you know, I didn't even really pray today. We can, it's entirely possible for us, without, without any effort at all, <laughs> to miss Jesus and what he's doing in the world. Like, it requires no effort to miss him. You know, it's, it's, it's a famous analogy I heard a preacher once say. It's like when you go down to the beach, and you're sitting there, and you're swimming in the water, and it's just awesome. You know, it's a beautiful day. The water's warm and you, you, you put all your stuff down you got your umbrellas and your, your towels and everything is amazing and then you just go swim and you're having a good time and then you look up and your umbrella's gone and you, your first thought is somebody stole my stuff and then you realize what it's all it's over there because what happened you drifted and what did you have to do to drift nothing nothing it requires no effort to drift but it requires focus and attention to stay where you're supposed to be. And that's what these rhythms do. And the early church established rhythms. They established practices of being together, of going to temple, of prayer, of communion. Over time, they would establish things like Lent and Easter and Advent and Christmas and Pentecost, these seasons that ground us in the story. They established rhythms of fasting and feasting, of being together because they realized that if we don't have regular things, in our schedule, rocks that we trip over, we can miss Jesus entirely. And so these shared rhythms form the backbone of the community. In fact, they changed calendars entirely. Do you know this? Do you know that the Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, established a calendar that was called the Julian calendar? And it was based on a 365 and one quarter day calendar. Do you know this? That the one quarter is where we get the year from? And for the better part of the next 1,500 years, this was the calendar that the world used, the Julian calendar. Do you know that we, 
do not use the Julian calendar today? Anybody know what calendar we use? Gregorian calendar. Does anybody know the difference between the two? The Gregorian calendar is based on 365 and a little less than a quarter days. Because the truth is, our, the, the, the way the sun works and the way the earth revolves around the sun and all this sort of stuff, it's not precise. So the Julian calendar was slightly off, which meant that, and this is why the, the, the impulse changed, okay, a little bit of nerdy history, which meant that the spring solstice, the beginning of spring, was not accurate. It would move over the course of years, which means what? <coughs> that Easter wasn't being celebrated on the day that the church decided to celebrate Easter, because Easter happens on the first Sunday after the full moon following the spring solstice. And so Pope Gregory established a new calendar with slightly less than a quarter day at the end of the 365 in order to observe Easter at the right time so Easter didn't drift back further and further. Does that make sense? Now, why do I say all that nerdy stuff? Because the church literally changed the calendar to be rooted in the story of God. That's what it is. What, what do you think you're doing here? What, could, what, what else could you be doing right now? What everybody else is. Just about anything. Hanging at the beach, going for a run, having a cup of coffee, whatever you want to be doing. But we changed the calendar and said, no, Sunday mornings are for Jesus. Yeah. I mean, they all are. But like specifically for this community, this space, so we can be rooted in the story. We need to change our rhythms and our habits if we expect to see Jesus at work in the world. Sundays are part of this. Tables are part of this, like Mike just talked about. One big one coming up, and I'm going to camp on this for just a second, is Lent. Lent starts on Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Woo! Yeah. Now, what is Lent real fast? Lent is a season of preparation for Easter. Because you don't just show up on Easter Sunday morning ready to, to celebrate resurrection. It's not how this works. How does resurrection work? Well, you see, you die first. And so Lent is a journey of walking with Jesus toward the cross. It's a journey of sacrifice and laying down so that when we arrive at Easter Sunday, our hands are empty and we're ready to receive resurrection power. So traditionally, what does Lent look like? It looks like some sort of a chosen fast, something you feel, something you give up to participate in this journey with Jesus. So here's what we want it to look like at Canopy, okay? We're calling everyone who calls Canopy home to do a couple things. One, first things first, give up unnecessary screens. And we understand work, all of that sort of stuff, but like screens are a primary distraction. So social media, TV, movies, whatever, whatever is your primary distraction. I, I, I don't know if you all get the screen time reports from Apple. It's crazy how it just like ticks up and up and up every week. Let's have it go the opposite direction for Lent, right? Yeah. Only screens when we need them, especially social media. Social media will not help you become more like Jesus, okay? <laughs> Let's give it up for Lent. And two, some sort of, uh, I'm not gonna mandate a food item if you have kind of issues, but it's there's something about giving up food that like hurts in a way that nothing else does, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some sort of a food item that you will feel, tacos. okay? Or tacos? <laughs> We can't give up tacos for Lent. I mean, that's like a classroom. Right? Just kidding. <laughs> Some sort of a food item that you'll feel, okay? You, you feel like I need two now? I need two now? All right, fair enough. I'm holding tacos right now. Thanks. Look what you did, Cody. Look what you did. No, but like, what's your thing? Is it coffee? Is it chocolate? I mean, should we start going around the room and calling each other stuff? 
Yeah, have someone else pick for you. There you go. You know, what's something, what's something that you'll feel? The point is to feel it, because here's the deal. If you don't notice, then it won't work. You're supposed to notice it, and when you notice it, you think, why am I so angry right now? Oh, it's because I haven't had my cup of coffee. Oh, wait a minute. I need coffee to be a nice person? Like Jesus, like Jesus, help me. You know, like, that's what fasting does. We feel fasting, and then, and then that feeling of loss directs us to feast on him. Okay? Third thing is we, together as a community, every month we have Seek First where we fast from Tuesday to Wednesday. We break the fast together with tacos. It's not just about me, guys. If I fast tacos, then everybody's going to have to fast tacos. I'm going to do that to you, right? Um, anyway, no, we, we break the fast together. We have a night of prayer and worship. That's once a month. During Lent, it's every week. Yeah. Okay? So every week... Tuesday night after dinner to Wednesday night dinner time. Fast, noon prayer in this place. We'll gather for Seek First, Lauren Tim's place. The, the address is online. Um, now, here's the deal with this. We have one problem. And I, I, I figured rather than solve the problem myself, I'd just bring it to you. The problem is this. Lent starts on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and we have no location. So I'm just throwing it out there. Does anybody have a space they know of? I know you... Are you I was confirmed with my wife, but we can use my space. Okay, we we need about probably I'm expect I'm expecting y'all to show up, so about a hundred people can come, right? Yeah. All right, okay, we'll talk. Yeah. If anybody, <laughs> talk to Wendy. Any, anybody else also feeling it? Feel free to talk to me after service. We need a place. So Wednesday night, what, what's our time? Five thirty to seven ish. Five thirty to seven ish, right? Location TBD. Just stay tuned. All of this will be on the app. I know the app is a necessary screen, okay? Nobody's going to get, like, stuck scrolling for hours on the app. Uh, and we'll, oh, yeah, we'll also be emailing you all this stuff. Anyway. There's so much to talk about. And there will be, uh, there will be a, a QR code going out in the email that has a link to a calendar you can subscribe to through Lens. So if you don't want to have to be, like, checking emails or whatever else, there will be a calendar you can subscribe to. It will put all the events throughout Lens with all the dates and everything else in your calendar. Cool? All right, that was a long one. Next, shared rhythms, uh, shared practices form the backbone of the community. All right, here we go. This is another big one. These are all big ones. Breathtaking generosity is the norm. Breathtaking generosity is the norm. You knew we were going to talk about money, right? Because the early church was free of anxiety when it came to their money. How did they do it? In Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says that they gave away everything they had and took care of one another. They actually, this is crazy. They, for a season, solved the problem of poverty in their community. And their community at the time what they, where they did this was 5,000 people. It said there was no needy person among them because all of them gave generously whatever they had. Generosity, not just like commonplace generosity, but breathtaking generosity was the norm among these people. Why? Because that's how our king lives. See, all of these things at the end of the day are simply reflections of Jesus. They're how he lives his life. Get into debates with Christians all the time about tithing. Because somewhere along the lines, especially in the American church, we learned that tithing is no longer mandated by the Bible. Instead, most good Christians will tell you, oh no, pastor, don't talk to us about tithing, talk to us about generosity. Because the New Testament never talks about tithing. It always talks about generosity. And I always say to him, you're so right. What do you suppose that means? Because oftentimes when people say that, what they're saying is, don't talk to me about 
Talk to me about generosity. Like, what feels costly to you? And I look at this church and I think, is that what they were doing? That they were saying, you know, we know that tithing is a thing, but like, just what, what feels generous to you? Because here's the thing, in their culture, the baseline was, was tithing. Like, Jesus didn't talk about tithing. There's a reason for it. Because everyone was already doing it. That was the baseline. And so when he talks about generosity, he's not saying, oh, don't worry about this. Do whatever you can. He's saying, start here and then exceed. Transcend. The reason he doesn't mandate tithing is because he doesn't want to restrict us to tithing. If this church just said, oh, don't worry about tithing. Just give whatever you can. Would culture have looked on and said, oh, my gosh. That's so radical. We've never seen that before. No, they would have said, why aren't you guys tithing? Why can't you even do that at least? But that's not what happened. The culture looked on and thought, oh my gosh, like what's happening here? That they're so free from fear and free to give. Now, I'm not trying to lay a number on you, but here's the thing. Canopy, if this is your home church, we're asking you to invest in the work of God here in a way that's sacrificial and generous. And yes, we all should be generous in our lives just as individuals. Look for opportunities daily to bless somebody with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, whatever it is. Be generous individuals. But we also want to be a generous community. And we believe that the, the generosity of God expressed in this place empowers the mission of the church. So we wouldn't have a church if it weren't for people being generous. Everything that's happening here, I love our church, and a lot of it is fueled by the generosity of the people who call it home. And our church is remarkably generous. You know, I, as a pastor, I subscribe to a couple different magazines, Christian journals, that talk about kind of what averages are out there. And it says that the average church, um, about 20% of the people, 20 to 30% of the people call the church home and give to the church. And I look at Canopy's numbers, and I don't look at them often because I'm just not a numbers guy. It's not the way my mind works. But I look at Canopy's numbers, and our numbers are actually like 50 to 60%. And I think, man, that's so cool. We're above average. <laughs> and I like that on one hand. But on the other hand, guys, do we want to be an above average church? No. No. What's the number that matters in the kingdom of God? A plus, that's the letters. More close. A hundred percent. How did Jesus, how did... Jesus didn't tithe his blood, you know? It wasn't a ten percent, it wasn't how much can I, how much can I get away with? It's everything. And I'm not saying we all have to give everything that we have and do what they did and sell our homes and sell everything else, but... But man, do we believe in the work that God is doing here? And are we willing to get behind it with our finance? Yeah. I'm going to call you. If, if this is your home church, would you invest regularly, sacrificially in this place? It's good for you. And it's good for us. And it's good for the world. And along those lines, you're not going to be the only one doing it. Because Canopy does it too. 26% of the money that comes into this church, we turn around and we give away through missional investments around the world. Largely here in our neighborhoods, but also some other stuff you'll hear about too around the world. And just to neighbors in need. If you have a neighbor in need, there's funds available at Canopy for your neighbor. 
Come to us. If you say, I have a friend who just lost a job, they can't pay rent this month, we will write a rent check. If you have somebody in your life that needs groceries or gas, we will buy grocery cards, we'll buy gas cards. Let us know we have these funds, 26%. And we're committed, this comes off the top. This is first fruits, we call it. First things off the top every month. And we're committed to growing this by 1% a year until we just can't anymore. So starting in July, our new budget year starts, it'll be 27%. And if you stick around this church as long as I intend to, we'll see it in the 70s or 80s someday, right? Okay, next. Oh, also along these lines, this is, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but um, we're, we're kind of outgrowing this place. I mean that in people, but I also mean that in, like, impact. We have a vision to see kingdom of God breaking out in West Side Costa Mesa in powerful ways. Um, and we're just limited by the space, the physical space we have. And I'd be happy to talk to you about this more. I'm just already rambling more than I should probably. But um, we feel like we're going to need a different space before too long. Not just for Sunday gatherings, but so that we can do more stuff for our neighborhood. We can do more stuff together, um, and we have no idea how to get there. So I ask this for, I, I throw this out there for a couple of reasons. As we talk about radical generosity, are there people out there who are hearing me that have um, connections or expertise in commercial real estate that would, that would be willing to give their time generously to help us make this happen? And second, I'm just going to throw it out there. If somebody has a building that you're not doing anything with, or you know, spare, spare a few million dollars that you just want to throw into the work, it will be put to good use, Okay. Next, we'll talk more about this in the, in the near future. One of the things, by the way, one of the things we're doing during Lent intentionally is fasting that God will open a door for us. Again, not, this is not about building a, a, the biggest church we possibly can. It's not about a Sunday gathering at all. We want to have space for people to come on a Sunday, for sure. But it's more than that. It's about really the neighborhood and how we can reach into the neighborhood and have really a parish church. You know, a church where stuff is happening all the time. Where the people of this neighborhood can come when they have need. And can just know that they're going to be loved. So... Would you fast with us? Would you pray for a building through Lent? Next, along these lines, um, caring for the poor is central to the mission of the church. This is clear in the book of Acts. Caring for the poor is central to the mission of the church. This is not optional because poverty doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, uh, there's always enough. The kingdom is defined by abundance. And so churches are places of abundance. Churches are going to be places that meet the needs of those who are in need. Um, yeah, it's as simple as that. This is, not, this is not so that we can evangelize. This is a form of evangelism. Okay? Because evangelism is simply displaying, putting into practice the kingdom of God. And if there is no poverty in the kingdom of God, then meeting needs is putting into practice the kingdom of God, isn't it? This isn't come and share this meal. This is, you know, we just had West Side Nights a couple nights ago. We didn't have West Side Nights to say, come and share this meal so you can hear the gospel. And I get people who will talk to me about this. When are you going to preach the gospel? And I'll say, we just did. <laughs> what we're saying instead is come and eat this meal in the presence of our king. Like, come and enjoy the abundance of our king. Because in his kingdom, here's the point. Ready? This is important, Kobe. In his kingdom, there are always enough tacos. Always enough tacos. All right. No, but... See, the word, for, the word for impoverished in the Bible, uh, in, in Hebrew, is oni, which means, um, it means oppressed. There are lots of reasons that people can be impoverished, right? And in our day and age, we tend to blame the people who are impoverished for their poverty. Oh, you're lazy, you don't work hard enough, you're dishonest, whatever else. And that certainly happens. 
But the biblical, biblical perspective from start to finish is that poverty is a function of oppression. Physical oppression that follows spiritual oppression. And in the kingdom of God, what do we do? We push back by the power of Jesus against the principalities and powers that cause spiritual oppression. And then against the systems of physical oppression that create poverty in the first place. And so in this place, to be good news people is to meet the, the needs of the poor by breaking systems, by providing services, by doing everything we can to see flourishing. Now, can we solve it all? No. But do we sit back on our hands and say, oh, you know, I had one Christian tell me, you know, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. And I said, do you think that's what that means? You think that was Jesus being fatalistic, saying, well, there's always going to be poor people, so don't bother with them. Are you serious? No, but that perspective is out there. You're not going to be able to fix it, so why bother trying? What? Well, it's never going to be solved until Jesus comes back, so no, 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 you don't understand. The kingdom of God is here and now. Now, it might not be fully realized, but I'm going to live in it. And wherever I go, I'm going to try to bring whatever I can of the kingdom into the reality. And that means no poverty. Right? That means that this place should be a place of abundance for our community. A place where needs are met. People are made whole. Next, quickly. <laughs> that clock just keeps on ticking, doesn't it? Okay. Pastoral Carol, there's eight points, guys. Cut me some slack. All right, this is an eight-point message. Normally, I'm a one-point guy. All right. Pastoral care empowers gospel witness. Real quick. Churches often get into arguments about, are we an outward-focused church and an inward-focused church? Are we, are we missional? Are we caring for our people? And this church just didn't worry about that kind of stuff. They just did them both. They were missional on Pentecost. The church grew. The church grew and started to get complicated. And so what did they do? They started taking care of one another. They actually built a deacon system to make sure that nobody in their church got overlooked. And as they did, this is so crazy in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Listen to this. They, they made the system of deacons to make sure that none of the widows were missed in the distribution of food. They appointed seven people, the first deacons in the church, to be servants to, to distribute food. And what happened at the end of it? So the word of God spread. <laughs> The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. What? Hold on, hold on, hold on. They took care of the people in the church, and then the group to church grew. How does that work? Guys, it's simple. If you have a community where people are cared for, doesn't everybody want to be a part of it? Yeah. I mean, it's as easy as that. If we love each other well, Jesus said the whole world's going to know. So how do we do mission well? Well, we, we love each other well. And how do we love each other well? It's by spurring each other on to love and good deeds. There is no tension between pastoral care and mission. Are we an inward-focused church or an outward-focused church? The answer is yes. Yes, both, always. The second we stray into one at the exclusion of the other, we die. If you have no inward focus, if you're not caring for people in the church, and you're just kind of trying to use them to get more people to come to the church and nobody's ever being loved, then what are you inviting people into? But if all you ever do is kind of have this holy huddle where everybody feels like really special and really seen and has this intimate community, but nobody out there ever hears, then this becomes toxic. Pastoral care exists to empower gospel witness. And when we hold those two things together, 
The church flourishes and the world changes. So what does that look like at Canopy? A couple things real quick. One, if you want to meet with a pastor, meet with a pastor. That's as simple as that. I, I, I've, I've heard people often, I'll say all the time, I want to have coffee with you. I want to hang out. Kiana will say the same. Mike will say the same. Brandon, Juan. Others will say, let's hang out together. We mean it. <laughs> like it might take a little bit to get on a schedule, but we mean it. Let's get together. Let's be together. If you want to talk to somebody, this is what pastors do. I had somebody tell me, we had coffee a few, like a month ago, and they said, I didn't know the pastors met with people. So what do you think we do? <laughs> like literally, I mean, that, but that was so tragic to me that you've been in a church context and didn't realize that that's what pastors were supposed to do. According to my understanding, we only do three things. We teach the word of God, we pray, and we meet with people. We care for people. And if you don't do those three things, you're not a pastor. So here at Canopy, if you want to meet with one of us, we'd love to. But beyond that, we're in process for the first time in Canopy's story of creating an elder team. You'll be hearing more about this in the future. And for us, elder is not a board member. It's not somebody who makes decisions about finances and kind of sits in a room and has long, long conversations. We have another team for that. <laughs> Elders are ministry leaders. They're pastors in our community. We're going to be, we're going to be training uh, over the next year, training and raising up our first elder team at Canopy. You'll be hearing a lot more about that. And their primary function is going to be to pastor this community alongside our staff. So more to come. Two more things, quick. And this, I mean, I could go on about this next one for a while. Core conviction of the early church. Women are leaders. Women are leaders. Oh, we can get some cheers? Okay, okay, here we go. This one might seem like it's a kind of a tangent from where we've been, but it's clear in the book of Acts that um, from start to finish, women are leading this church, okay? In the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that there were 120 people gathered, both men and women, and it says very clearly multiple times that the Holy Spirit fell on all of them and all of them prophesied. In other words, during the first church gathering, women were speaking. Okay, okay, okay. During the first church gathering, women were speaking. We go on in the story, we meet a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, interesting a couple who have this young man, Apollos, this brilliant, educated, well-spoken Jewish Christian who comes to them and they correct his theology. They teach him. Now notice who teaches him? Priscilla and Aquila. Not Aquila and his wife. Not even Aquila and Priscilla. But notice the order. Priscilla and Aquila. You might think that's coincidence, but that's not how it works in the ancient world. You list the more significant person first. And here, not the husband, but the wife. As a matter of fact, there is a very strong case to be made that Priscilla is the author of the book of Hebrews. We'll talk later. <laughs> Lydia, church in Philippi. When Paul goes to Philippi, he looked for a synagogue. There was no synagogue in the city. But he said, hey, there's a group of women that pray by the river. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll go down there. So Paul goes down there and he preaches the gospel to this group of women and plants the church with this group of women. Why was there no synagogue in the city? Because there weren't enough praying Jewish men in the city. In order to have a synagogue, you need at least 12 Jewish men to show up. They couldn't get 12 men to show up. So these women, instead of just sitting back and saying, oh, well, they gathered by the river and prayed an unauthorized synagogue. And what does Paul do? He shows up and he makes it a church. He says, well, you might not be good enough for a synagogue, but you're good enough for a church. And the church that met in Lydia's house is what it was called. 
I don't know if she was married or not, but it didn't meet in her husband's house if she was. It met in her house. And what does that mean? That she was the pastor. That's how you talked about it. The pastor of the church in Philippi. The best church, if you read all the rest of the, the epistles. In all of the epistles, Paul is angry or frustrated about something. But in Philippians, he's glowing. Because he's put this woman in charge and it's working. Now, I know what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I know what he says in other places, and it's confusing, and, and, and I, I, I understand that we have to wrestle with it. But again, we have to wrestle with it in light of the whole story. We don't just pick that passage and say, oh, women aren't allowed to speak in church. No, because on the first church service, they did. And Paul lived with Priscilla and Aquila. Do you think he didn't know what she was capable of? And he planted a church with Lydia. And on and on it goes. And by the way, it has to make sense of Jesus, right? I know what he says in 1 Timothy. Well, how did Jesus act? What did, how did Jesus treat women? How did he empower them? We have to read the Bible as a whole story and wrestle with the stuff that seems a little bit in tension. The fact of the matter is, clearly, women are leading in the early church. Clearly. Clear as day. And the rationale is simple. Because this was a chauvinistic society. This was a sexist society, okay? And so I imagine it was hard for them too. But here's what happened. They're sitting there on the day of Pentecost, and the tongues of fire appeared above the men and the women. And they started preaching by the power of the Spirit, the men and the women. And if you're Peter or John, you're, you're probably sitting here saying, well, they're not supposed to be doing that. You know, I can imagine the conversation between Peter and John. What? They're, they're, they're like teaching the women are teaching. They're not educated for that. They're not allowed to do that. They're not supposed to be doing that. And John's like, well, what do you want to do? They had a flame fire above their head, too. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it, right? If the Holy Spirit empowers them, then who on earth are we to stand in the way? It's as simple as that. Canopy is not a church that empowers women leaders. They're already empowered. <clears throat> Canopy is a church that's just going to get out of the way Amen. and let them lead. Okay, that means that women can serve in any function here at this church that a man can serve. We have an oversight team. A woman is chairing our oversight team. We have women on that team. When we have elders, there will be women elders. We have women pastors. Kiana is not our worship director or worship coordinator. <laughs> she is our worship pastor. I want to be clear on this. Women are leaders. That's just the way it is. Okay? Now, if you want to have a longer conversation about this, I'd be happy to. I got to have it two times this last week. It was so fun. I have, guys, I have like a two-hour version of that talk, okay? This is a, a passion point for me as a dad of daughters and a husband to a wife who is a remarkable leader herself. So. And maybe you might just hear her preach in the near future. She just gave me a look. Okay. And a great preacher. She's, she doesn't like it, but she's really good at it. Finally, last one. We'll get it up on the screen. Life is messy. Humility is essential. Do we have this one, Serene? Did we miss one? We missed one. Life is messy. Humility is essential. Unity is non-negotiable. Okay? I'll say that one more time since it's not up there. Life is messy. Humility is essential. Unity is non-negotiable. In other words, when the Holy Spirit shows up, he does what he wants. <laughs> And this was a church that, that was used to very rigid structures of the way that God was supposed to work in the world. And then he came in and he just started doing stuff. And their theology had to catch up with their practice, their experience, right? 
It's not to say he's contradicting scripture. He never does that. But he comes in and he says, you've got these rigid theological and, and practical systems that you think are the way that I'm supposed to work. But I'm the most creative, powerful being in the universe. I can do what I want. And he blows these things up. And they're having like real time to rethink their theology and their practice. They're having real time to wrestle with who God actually is. And when this happens, when our carefully thought out rules and theologies get a little bit messy, we get uncomfortable. Because the wrong people start to show up at the church. We start to have arguments about how we're supposed to behave and not behave. And, and, and what happens in the book of Acts is the Gentiles start coming in and everybody starts to feel weird about it. What do we do? Are they allowed here? What, what kind of practices do they have to have? And what do they do in that, in that context? They work it out gently and humbly, letting the Spirit lead and letting Him kill in us whatever He needs to kill. And always choosing one another. Okay? So when He comes and messes things up, what do we do? We bow and we say we trust you. And then we choose each other and we lean in and figure it out together. It's as simple as that. All right. That was a lot. Guys, Book of Acts. Done. Uh, there's a lot more that we could say. I'm happy to, as I said, I'm happy to grab coffee with anybody. Just not starting tomorrow. I'll be gone for 10 days. Pray for us. We're going to Israel. I know I was just gone, gone again. Laura, Tim, and I, Marta, my daughter, it's going to be a thing. I'd love to pray for my family, pray for our team, all that sort of stuff. But when I get back, I'd love to hang with you and talk about this stuff. I'm going to get you all to stand. And here's, here's how this works, really simply. We've been talking about it, now we want to do it. So, we're going to kind of have a moment simply to commission ourselves into this work. Okay? If Canopy is your home church, then this is the kind of church we want to become. We already are, but we want to become an increasing ways. And so, invest. Show up. Help. Create this kind of a community. So in this moment, we're not going to have a time, I mean, obviously after the service, if you want to pray with somebody, you can, but we're not going to have a time of down prayer. We're not going to have any of that. We just want to, like, step in together. So we're going to sing some things that are true of who Jesus is. And as we do, would there just be this, like, I don't even know how else to describe it, but just this leaning in and this choosing. Like, here I am. I'm investing. I'm in. So we're just going to pray and worship together, end our time. That's all I have to say.